So in our study through John 11, obviously we're going through the Gospel of John here. When I studied through John chapter 11, we all know that Lazarus has been in the tomb for how long? I think your math's a little wrong. He's been in the tomb for 21 days <laughs> in our study through the Gospel of John. And so it's time to let him out, right? It's time to let Lazarus out. He's been in the tomb for 21 days. We've, we've been dragging it out here. We're finally to the resurrection. We're finally to letting Lazarus out of the grave here. That's our fourth message. I didn't know if anyone was going to get that joke. I, I, maybe I didn't deliver it well. But he's been in the grave for 21 days in our study. Uh, but let's let him out. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 11, and we'll look at verses 38 through 44 this morning. It says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Title of the message this morning, Dead Man Walking. Dead Man Walking. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this conclusion of this account of the resurrection of Lazarus. We thank you that we're going to get to dig a little deeper into what this miracle of a dead man being raised to life, what it speaks to us about who Jesus is and what it speaks to us about what Jesus can do. And Lord, I pray that as we go through this section that you would speak to your people here today. And I also pray, God, that you would speak to those who aren't in relationship with you yet, that have not declared you Lord of their life. I pray that you would open their heart to see who Jesus is. And God, I pray that you would do your work and that you would be glorified through all of it. And I pray especially, Lord, that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever faced a situation that you believed was impossible? I know we all have, at some point in our life, we face a situation that we believed was impossible. And if you're like me, my kids will make fun of me. If Eliana was here, she would, I believe she's here somewhere, but if she was on the front row, she would be telling me, she would say that I'm, I'm, I'm a pessimist, that I'm kind of like, oh, it's over, it's done. If I have a favorite golfer that I like to watch, which I like to watch Jordan Spieth, and he's like a roller coaster ride watching him play golf, and, you know, he hits a bad shot. Oh, it's done. It's done. There's no chance. Are you like that when you watch Saints games? <laughs> you have a little bit of hope this year? The new quarterback, maybe? But, but that's temporary type athletic things. But you know, sometimes we face situations that really seem impossible. Like, I don't know how to get out of this. I don't know what's going to happen. And, and in this situation with Lazarus being dead for four days, Martha and Mary and the family, it, it, it's, it's over for them. Lazarus is dead and they've been grieving. And, and what we know of Jewish funerals that this, this 
mourning was going to take place for over a week, sometimes up to even 30 days, they would still be in a process of formal mourning. So this was just kind of even the early stages of that process, but, but for them, it's over. It's impossible. It, nothing can be done. We're going to move on. And Jesus is coming in, and he's throwing all these mixed signals, and he's delaying, and he's not getting to the tomb right away. We saw that in the first, uh, first week, second week, and he's, 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 he's saying that, that this is supposed to be for the glory of God, and he's... He's, he's comforting those that are broken, and he's weeping with those that are weeping. And, and there's this sense we, we saw last week where he's, he's burdened with the unbelief of the people. That, that wouldn't they not believe that he could do something? Would they not believe? And so this is kind of where we're all going and we're headed, and it's been four days, and Lazarus is dead. And what we're going to do as we look at the raising of Lazarus, which is impossible. It's impossible for a dead person to be raised. It is. And so, what are we going to learn from something that's impossible happens? What are we going to learn from that? Something that's impossible actually takes place. Jesus raises Lazarus, and we saw that when we read this text. What do we learn about that? And I think there's some things that are so important for us to learn. Last week, we looked at the humanity of Christ. We looked at Jesus wept. That he was touched with our feelings and he, he had emotions and feelings and he wept with those who were weeping and he's moved by what we go through and what we walk through. But now today we're going to look at his deity. Jesus was not only fully man, but he was fully God, truly man and truly God. And so what we learn from the raising of Lazarus is that dead people do not rise from the dead on their own. God has to raise people from the dead. And so we're going to look at an affirmation on the front end of the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And then there's going to be two other affirmations we're going to look at as to what only God can do. Jesus is God because he raised Lazarus from, from the dead. But there's other things that, that we can learn because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. There's other things that only Jesus can do. And we're going to look at those affirmations. So three affirmations of Christ and his deity and what he alone has the power to do. Are you guys ready? So the first affirmation is this. is straightforward. Jesus is God. Because only God can raise the dead. Jesus is God and only God can raise the dead. Do you, you, you remember what we just read? John eleven thirty nine, second half of 39. Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. He's been dead four days. Martha is speaking to the earthly realities of what she's facing. And Jesus is coming up to the tomb. And she's telling Jesus he's dead. Four days. The King James Version, I have to say the joke because it's just, you have to say it. The King James Version, it says, Martha says, for by now he stinketh. <laughs> and so there's an odor. They didn't embalm dead people uh, by Jewish tradition. And so it would have been really smelly. That's why they had lots of spices and, and perfume they would put on dead bodies. And so, so Martha is speaking right here, Lord, by this time, it's gonna, he's going to stink. He's been dead for days. And if you remember, there was a Jewish tradition, and we talked about this last week, and Brother Tim talked about it the previous week. There's a tradition that the spirit of a, of a person hovered above the grave for three days. And if there was any possibility of a resurrection, it would have to be within those three days. So Martha is just going over, communicating to the Lord again, reminding him, Lord, it's going to stink if you open the tomb. And he's been dead for four days. He's been dead for four days, Lord. 
Martha, in essence, is communicating not only the harsh reality of what has happened to Lazarus, but she's communicating the impossibility of where things stand right now. I think it's interesting just to note, when you read interactions between people and Jesus, you really learn a lot of lessons about us. So I think it's interesting that Martha, when Jesus says to remove the stone, that she thinks she needs to inform Jesus about the situation. I think it's just a little side note for us to, con- to consider here. Uh, the, she's saying, Lord, Lord, I, I, just a little reminder, a little information, in case you've forgotten, there's a dead body in there for four days. If you take away the stone, it's going to stink. And, and by the way, he's been dead for four days. So why remove the stone, Lord? Just a little information. Does that sound like us sometimes? We've got to inform the Lord about our situation. Lord, just a reminder, um, here, me, over here, in case you forgot where I live, my address. Let me tell you about what's happening in my life. We, you know, we often think that God doesn't know. I, I love what Psalm 139 tells us. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with what? All of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together, Martha. Even before the words were on your tongue, Martha, the Lord knows your heart. He knows you think it's impossible. He knows you think this is impractical. He knows what you think. He knows all about your situation. And I love the patience of our Lord in this situation. I love his patience throughout the whole process. He, he knows he's going to raise Lazarus. But he's walking with this family every step of the way, step by step, he's with them. He's, he's not going to be rushed. He's not going to be pushed to do things according to their timing. He's going to do things according to his plan and the will of his father. But he's patient and he's loving and he's with them. And, and I love what his, what, what's his response to the information that Martha thought he needed. Look at 40. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God. Martha, I know. I know it's going to stink. I know, I know he's been dead for four days, but did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Martha, don't forget. I think this is what Jesus is telling Martha. Martha, don't forget what I am doing here is not about what you think it's about. What I'm doing here is not what you think it's about. This is about me getting glory. You would see the, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. And certainly there were a lot of people who were confused about what Jesus is doing, just like Martha is confused about the practicality of removing the stone. There are people who were confused. We saw last week, could he not, the person who opened the eyes of the blind man, could he not have stopped this man from dying? There's confusion and confusion over the timing, confusing of why he didn't do something sooner and and now confusion over the, uh, why roll over the, why roll off the tombstone? Why, why do this? It stinks. He's dead four days. It's impossible. It's done. Now, and I, I love Jesus' next response. Let's continue reading. Look back to the text, John eleven forty one. So they obeyed Jesus, which is a good idea. They took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So isn't that interesting? It's a prayer that he's praying, but he's not praying. Isn't it weird? He's not praying necessarily because he wants, he needs his father to hear. 
He specifically says, I'm praying this so they will believe me. I'm praying this on their account so that they'll believe. So what's he doing? I think he's, he's demonstrating to them. He's going to demonstrate to them the, the, the validity of his connection to the Father. He has said over and over again, I and the Father are one. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? And so he's praying to the Father. He's wanting them to hear it, but he's wanting them to hear it because he wants them to know in just a moment that you're going to see me raise this dead man, and you need to know the Father I'm praying to, he sent me. I and him are one. He's praying on their account so that they can hear, Father, I thank you. That they may believe. Belief, it's, it's, it's about belief. Is it not about belief? Isn't that, if, if you were to narrow down what Christianity is all about, what, what, what would you, could you narrow it down to one word? I, I, I think, according to this text and what we see throughout the Gospels, it's about belief. Will you believe or will you not believe? The next question is, will you believe or not believe in what? In Jesus. That Jesus is not only sent from God, but that he is God. Right? This is the point of the Gospels. This is the point of what we see throughout the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's about the revelation of God and the, and the, and the, and, and, and the provision for the sins of humanity through, through, through Christ coming and dying and taking our place. It's about belief in his finished work. The point of the gospel is that we would believe in Jesus, that he is God. It's about belief. Does that sound familiar? Even the purpose of the gospel of John, do you remember when we started in 39 weeks ago, if you remember that? It was probably a little longer, but uh, last year sometime, we started, I think January of last year, we started in the gospel of John. Do you remember John 20? Verse 30 through 31, what was the purpose of John writing his account of the life of Jesus? Look, look at John 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's about belief. It's about belief that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, is what Christ means, the Christ, Messiah, but he's not just the Messiah from an earthly standpoint, he is the Son of God, and that if you believe in him, John says, you will have life in his name. His name is the only name that can produce life. His name is the only name that if you believe in his name, you can have life, and that life is speaking of eternal life, true life. And so it's about belief. Christianity is about belief. We live in a culture today that we want to make it not about belief. We want to make it about other things, about social issues, about uh, the, the problems in our society and dealing with tornado victims, right? And that, that's a part of what we do as Christians to meet other people's needs and be the hands and feet of Christ. But it's not about those physical, tangible needs alone. It's about belief. Christianity is about belief in Jesus Christ. It really is, in essence, it's the, it's the dividing line of all religions. Because there's no other religious figure that claimed to be God. None. Jesus is the only one that claimed to be God. And in this story, we see he backs up his claim by raising somebody from the dead, which is impossible to do unless you're, unless you're God. And so it's about belief in Jesus. Do you remember the story of Nicodemus? You remember Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He came to see Jesus at night. I kind of say it like this. Nicodemus was tiptoeing around the truth about Jesus. He didn't want to be seen in public with Jesus because his fellow Pharisees didn't believe in Jesus. 
They thought, Jesus, they thought Jesus was a blasphemer. So Nicodemus sees the signs, and he's tiptoeing around the deity. He's not there yet, but look what, look what uh, uh, John 3 says. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from, from God, for no one can do these things unless God is with him. Right? He's, he's getting there. He's stepping towards some truth there. He's acknowledging that Jesus must be from God. He can't be of the devil as the Pharisees, as other Pharisees' friends said. He must be from God. Look at all the signs that he's doing. And his building, Jesus is, is performing these signs, these miracles, so that people would believe that he's not just a man or the Messiah or a good teacher. He is, he's God. So the miracle of Lazarus says, shouts that Jesus is God. It's kind of like when Jesus died. He gave up his spirit on the cross. Do you remember what was said after he gave up his spirit, what you see in Matthew 27? So Nicodemus tiptoed around the deity of Christ, but a Roman soldier, he declared it boldly. When the centurion and those who were with him, Matthew 27, 54, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake that took place, they were all filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. It's about belief. What do you believe? You know, Jesus didn't come and give a lot of options for his identity. What are some options that people come up with, though? Good, he's a good teacher, right? He taught like nobody else ever taught. I mean, that's what they said about Jesus. He teaches like no one's ever taught. And you know what's interesting? We are so enamored by good preachers, aren't we? Right? And people will fill buildings to follow good preachers, right? Jesus was the best preacher who ever lived, and they killed him. No one was left. They killed him. I think I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> you haven't strung me up yet. Give it time, right? Good teacher. He's not just a good teacher. Prophet. See, a prophet, is that, is that all Jesus is? Yeah, he was a prophet. He prophesied, repent, believe in the gospel. He came to declare the bold truth of why he came and who he was. Was he a compassionate servant? Absolutely. He epitomized compassion and servanthood. He said, I didn't come just to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Was he a dynamic leader? I think he was a dynamic leader, but not by the measure of worldly standards because everybody left him. And all those things could be said of Jesus, and all those things are true. But that's not ultimately what he came to declare. He came to declare that he was God. And I think people, people misrepresent Jesus all the time. They attribute things to him that aren't true of who he is. Have you ever been misrepresented? Right? Have you ever been misrepresented? Have you ever been misinterpreted? Right? You say something and... Uh, that someone says you said something, but you didn't really say that, and they interpret your motives, and they interpret your words differently than what you intended to say, misinterpreted, misrepresented. You know, what's interesting about Jesus is that his words and his actions were congruent. They perfectly came together. He said he was God, and then he raises Lazarus from the dead. He said he was God, and then he did the impossible. Right? How often do we say things, but we don't back them up with our actions? Or, or we do things, and we don't back them up with our words. But his words and his actions, they were congruent, and they declared boldly that he was God. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't 
just a compassionate servant. He wasn't just a dynamic leader. He was, he's God. And so this raising of Lazarus, the first affirmation that's so clear is that Jesus is God because only God can do the impossible. Only God can raise dead people. So the question as we seek to transition to the next affirmation is this, is do you believe correctly about Jesus? I mean, that's the obvious question that I think needs to be asked anytime we talk about the deity of Christ, is do you believe correctly about Jesus? It's not, it's not about necessarily what, what I believe about Jesus. You hearing what I believe about Jesus, I'm telling you. But what, what do you believe in, the heart, in your heart of hearts and in, in, in how God is moving in your life? Maybe you're here today and, and you got invited with, by a friend or a coworker and, and you've been sitting in here, you're trying to figure things out. I'm here today to confront you, to challenge you with a question. What, what do you believe about Jesus? Is, is he just a solution to your problems? Is that what Jesus is? Is he a solution to problems? What about this? Is Jesus just a teacher to help us navigate life? Right? I think that's how a lot of people see Jesus. He, he teaches good, and I love his principles. I can apply them to my life, and my marriage is better, my family is better, my finances are better. Th- th- things are looking up when I follow Jesus. Is, is that all Jesus is? Right? Or what about this? Is Jesus just a last-ditch option when all else fails? I've tried everything else, and I'm done. Nothing else has worked, but he's my last-ditch effort. We're going to try him out. What about this? Is Jesus, this is a popular one. Is he a genie in the bottle who gives you whatever you desire? Is that Jesus to you? Or maybe, what about this one? Here's, a, here's one that I think hits home for a lot of us. Is Jesus just a religion of your ancestors? And for some of you here today, maybe, maybe that's true of your life. You're here because your mom was a Christian and your dad was a Christian, your grandmother was a Christian, and now you're a Christian, but you're not a believer in the deity of Jesus Christ. You believe in religion. You believe that he's, I, I like it, the feels. All the feels are good. You know, it feels good. It sounds good. You know, the preacher says a joke every now and then. But those aren't all options that Jesus leaves for us, that leaves us with. It's it's really, do you believe he's God or not? There's really only one option. He cannot, Jesus cannot, nor should not be reduced to anything less than what he declared and proved himself to be, which is what? God incarnate, the son of God, the eternal one who existed before time began. This is Jesus, the eternal God. Why? Because only God can do the impossible. And this is what Jesus did. So this is the first affirmation that Jesus is God. So clear in the text. Only Jesus can raise the dead. What is the message? So as we move to the next two affirmations, here's what I want to seek to do. What is the message underneath that affirmation? What is the, I I think there are some clear parallels between the fact that Jesus can raise the physical dead, those that are physically dead. There's some clear parallels to our lives and the heart of the gospel. Two affirmations that speak to what Jesus can do, who he is and what he can do. The second affirmation is this, is that Jesus is God and only God can save dead sinners. Jesus is God and only God can save dead sinners. He's God and he proved he was God by raising Lazarus physically from the dead and ultimately himself from the dead. And so because of that, only Jesus can raise dead Sinners. Look at the text, John eleven thirty nine. 39. We, we read it earlier. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, 
The sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, he's going to stink. He's been dead for days. And the obvious parallel here between the dead Lazarus is this. The parallel is this. It's between the physical raising of Lazarus by Jesus, the Son of God, and the raising to spiritual life by the Son of God of all who place their faith in him. That's the parallel right here. So clear in this text. Why? Because all over the New Testament, that's what you see, that people who are not spiritually alive are spiritually dead. Those who are not believers, the Bible declares them to be spiritually dead. And the pinnacle, the premier section of Scripture that tells us that is is Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians 2. We clearly won't have it on these screens, but behind me, if you can see behind me, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, look at this text. It says this, and you were dead. In what? The trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, were natural born sinners, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. So sinners, before they are alive, they are dead, right? It seems pretty simple, right? Pretty obvious. Before you're alive, you're dead. To be alive, to go from dead to life, you have to be raised from the dead. And this is the picture of spiritual life. And the, this belief is what I would call the world's perspective. Um, excuse me. Sinners, sinners uh, before they're born again, are, um, are not in some kind of new, new, neutral state, right? We, we see that the Bible says that sinners are all dead spiritually. But there is a belief out there that everyone's just kind of neutral. We're just in this neutral state. And, and this is what I would call that belief uh, of this neutral state. I would call it the basically good perspective. That's how people see the world and see people who aren't Christians. Well, everyone's just basically good. You've heard it, right? Humanity is just good. I, 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 for some reason, I got hooked on to some 9-11 documentaries the last two or three days, and I've just been watching 9-11 documentaries, and I can't tell you how many times I heard this statement. People are just basically good. They're just basically good. Look at the good of humanity. Look at the good of humanity. And in some natural ways, it's true. Right? When crisis comes, people will rise to the occasion and, there's some, there, there's, and they can exhibit goodness and kindness and love and generosity. And, but but th- these are what we would call the common grace that all of us have as humans. That we have the capacity to help one another, to love one another, to serve one another, to, to go and to meet physical needs in North Mississippi. Right? And that's a common grace for everybody, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. These are common graces. But the Bible tells us something a little different about the core of who we are as human beings. The gospel tells us that none of those good common grace attributes can raise us up from spiritual death. No matter how good you are to people in North Mississippi, no matter how good you are to the victims of 9-11, no matter how good you are, how much money you give, how sweet you are to your spouse, how much wrong you do not do, none of those good things that we are capable of doing are good enough to raise us up to spiritual life. That's what the gospel tells us. The basically good perspective places humanity in the position of being able to do enough to save themselves by their own good 
works. That's the basically good perspective, is that we're all basically good, and, and if we can do good enough, it's like the scale system. If my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds when I get to the other side, whatever the other side looks like, maybe God will look at my good deeds and he'll say, well, you were better than you were bad, and so you're good to go. But the Bible doesn't give us that opportunity. I think the biblical position could be called this, the thoroughly dead perspective. That's the biblical perspective. The thoroughly dead perspective. Basically, good perspective is the world's perspective. The biblical position says, no, thoroughly dead people cannot do anything to raise themselves up spiritually. Why do I know that? Look at the next verses in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is what? Not your own doing. Oh, you were good though. You were really good. I like you. You're sweet. You're kind. You're really good, right? You make good coffee. You cook good meals. You don't cheat on your spouse. You pay your taxes. You're really good. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. What? It is the gift of God. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. No one may may boast. You know, we do like to boast, don't we? We live live in a society that loves to boast over everything. And if we could save ourselves, trust me, we would go around boasting that we saved ourselves. And we do sometimes do that. Can I just pause right here and just think about how glorious this gospel reality is that I don't have to save myself? Can we just stop and thank God for the gospel? What, a, what, a, what an amazing truth that I don't have to be good enough for God to save me. I don't have to build up a right amount of good work so that God will look at me and say, okay, that's enough. You've done it. You're good. He did it all. Now, salvation's by faith. It's a gift of God. Why is this so glorious? That, it's, that salvation is separate from our good works because if we could save ourselves by our good works, then salvation would be subjective instead of objective. If we could save ourselves by our good works, then it would be based upon a subjective reality and not an objective reality of what Christ did. Said an, another way, if salvation came by good works, then no one could ever know if they had done enough to merit forgiveness. Did you hear that? If salvation came by good works, then no one would ever be able to know if they did enough to merit salvation. Because who gets to be the judge? If, If that's the system, but it's clearly not the system. God showed us this in Scripture. But if that's the system we believe, then we never know. Did we do enough? Have we earned enough? Here's how I'll illustrate it. I think what, what happens is that we become, when, when we do believe that salvation is by our works, this is what we become. We become insecure, works-based legalists. That's what we become. When we don't have an assurance of our salvation, that Christ is the one who saves us and we can't save ourselves, we become insecure, works-based legalists. We never have security and a sense of peace that God is the one who saved us and, and we have that sense that we always have to try to save ourselves. It's kind of like this. Here's an illustration. I want you to picture a line. Okay, so picture in your mind a line, a straight line. Picture that line just kind of goes on forever, right? It's just this line. We're going to call that line the state of grace. 
the state of grace. You got the line in your mind? The state of grace, this line is a path that you can walk on. So imagine this line is like a path. It's a, it's a straight line. It's called the state of grace. And, and we, when you become a believer, this, this idea of works righteousness is kind of like this, okay? You could become a believer by faith in Christ, but, and you, so you get on to the, to the, the path, the, the state of grace road, and you're walking down that road. And if you believe that salvation is by works, and it's maintained by works, here's what happens. You're walking down that path, and you sin, and then oh, you fall off the state of grace line. And then you got to get back up, right? So you got to do something to get back up, right? You got to save yourself again to get back into the state of grace. And prayerfully, by the time you die, you're not off the state of grace, that you're back on the state of grace. And so you got to make sure that you are alive enough, long enough, before you die so you can repent and get back to the state of grace. Are you tracking with me? Maybe some of you came from churches who taught that mindset, the state of grace. So what happens if we believe that salvation depends on us? Then we live our lives believing that when we are in the state of grace one day, and maybe we won't be the next day, one moment and not the next. And the idea is, is that we think we can get, us, get ourselves back into that state of justification before God by what we do. The truth of the gospel, however, tells us that only God can raise dead sinners. Only God can do that. So you'd have to crucify yourself for your own sins if that's the case. If, you, if, if we could get ourselves back in the state of grace, that means that we would have to pay the penalty for our sins. But what does the Bible say? I love Romans 5. Listen to this. Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by what? By faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtain access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. If you believe, Martha, you'll see the glory of God. How do you, receive, how do you see the glory of God? By belief in Jesus Christ. Don't you love those three phrases there? I underlined it there for you. Justified by faith, peace with God, and rejoice. This is how it flows. You place your faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross, and you're justified. You're justified by faith. And then secondly, you have peace with God. And then lastly, we rejoice. Amen. We rejoice. Are y'all happy? I'm not convinced. I think some of y'all are, some of y'all are a little confused. Maybe I haven't done a good job here this morning. Justified by faith. Peace with God. And then we we rejoice. Why? Because I'm justified by faith. Not a scale system of works righteousness. I'm justified by faith in the finished work of the cross. Really, here's the, here's the question. You remember I asked you earlier a question, what, what, what do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe he's God or not? Well, here's another question for you. I, I guess maybe if you're still confused or maybe you don't agree with me, maybe this question will help you out. What are you putting your faith in? What are you putting your faith in? That's the question of all questions. What are you putting your faith in? There's only two options. Do you know that? There's only two options. What are you putting your faith in for your eternal destiny? There's only two options that are available. You or Christ. That is it. You or Christ. Or said another way, your good works or his finished work. Which one do you choose? Which one are you going to lean on? Your good works or his finished works. I, 
I love the song, All Sufficient Merit, by Bethany Bernard. Listen to these words. All sufficient merit, shining like the sun. A fortune I inherit, I inherit by no work I have done. My righteousness I forfeit at my Savior's cross, where all sufficient merit did what I could not. In love he condescended, eternal now in time. A life without a blemish, the maker made to die. The law could never save us. Our lawlessness had won until the pure and spotless lamb had finally come. It is done. It is finished. More debt I owe. Paid in full, all sufficient merit, now my own. I lay down my garments, any empty boast. Good works all corrupted by the sinful host. I'm dressed in my Lord Jesus, a crimson robe made white. No more fear of judgment. His righteousness is mine. Amen? Amen. So what is the first affirmation this morning? Jesus is God. And only God can raise dead, 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 dead people. Only God can raise a dead Lazarus. And secondly, Jesus is God and only God can raise dead sinners. That's what this story teaches us. Only God can raise dead sinners. Let's look at the last affirmation as we're wrapping up here this morning. Jesus is God and only God, thirdly, can change, change redeemed sinners. Jesus is God and only God can save dead sinners. And Jesus is God and only God can change redeemed sinners. How many redeemed sinners do we have here today? Amen? Redeemed sinners. I was a sinner, now I'm a redeemed sinner. I've been redeemed, bought back from the slavery to sin. Look back to the text, John 11, concluding verses. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out and his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. I've heard commentators say that Jesus had, when he said, come out, he had to say Lazarus, because if he didn't, all the dead people were getting out of the graves. <laughs> so he had to be specific. Lazarus, only you, buddy. The others, y'all are coming later. Now, there's just a little, isn't another little side note I think is pretty interesting. Notice what Jesus says to the crowd watching this stunning miracle. He says, unbind him and let him go. Do you remember earlier, Jesus told them, hey, roll away the stone? Now, he says, unbind him and let him go. Isn't that interesting? Did God in flesh, who's about to raise a dead man from the grave, did he need help rolling the stone away? Did he need help taking off the grave clothes? He could have called him out of the grave and he could have had no grave clothes on. But I think it's interesting that the eternal God, who could do anything and everything, wouldn't need anybody. He says, hey, 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 roll that stone away. I'm about to do something you can't do, but you can do that. Hey, 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 I don't need your help to unbind that guy. But won't you unbind him? Take off his grave clothes. You know what that tells us? It's a mystery of the kingdom of God. Here's the mystery. God does what he alone can do. And he asked us to join him to do what he alone can empower us to do. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that good? Only God can do the impossible, but he asked us to join him in his work. I, I can't help but pick on the missionaries on the third row here. Look, there's, there's an impossible work for you in Honduras. It is. It's impossible. You can't save dead. You cannot save dead sinners. You can't do it. No matter how hard you try, how sweet you are, you can't do it. But through their willingness, the Crothers' willingness, 
and saying, yes, here am I like Isaiah. Here I am, send me. God will do the impossible through them. And that's the mystery of the kingdom. And that could be said of true, of, that could be true of us. We don't have to go to Honduras to do it. We can do it right here, maybe in your bedroom, next to your spouse who's not a believer, maybe on your job, right? You, we just have to be willing to say yes. I just love that picture. Only God can save dead sinners. Only God can change. So back, back to the story of Lazarus here. He says, unbind him and let him go. So, so not only is it an obvious picture of spiritual life from death to spiritual life, but, but I, I think this picture of unbind him and let him go, that there's an obvious picture here of the, of the sanctification of the believer. That when we're born again, we have grave clothes on, don't, don't we? I would call it remnants of the dead man. When we get born again, our attitudes aren't sanctified yet. Sometimes our thoughts, our habits aren't changed yet. Was anybody perfect when they got born again? Anybody still rude to their spouse every now and then? Anybody had some, 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 some words? Maybe when you first got, before you were saved, you cursed worse, worse than a sailor. And then you get saved, and now you're on your job, and you go to curse again, but there's something different now. The Spirit lives within you, and He convicts you, but every now and then you slip up and you say a curse word. That's what you would call grave clothes, remnants of the dead man. Habits that need to be changed. Sanctification that needs to grow. We need to become more like Christ. And I think this is the picture here, that only God can raise dead sinners. We can't save ourselves, but we cannot change ourselves either. It has to be the Lord. He's the one who changes us. God does the saving, and God does the changing. God raises the spiritually dead, and God sanctifies the redeemed sinner. Amen? I love what Romans 6 says. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In essence, my whole second point, are we to continue in sin because we can't save ourselves? Are we to continue in sin because salvation doesn't come from our good works? No, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He saves us and he sets us on the journey of walking in newness of life. When you're born again, your heart's going to change, your desires are going to change, and you're going to begin this process of becoming more like Christ in your thoughts, in your actions, and in your words, and the way you treat people, the way you forgive people, the way you love people, the way you care for people. Newness of life. Evident, there will be evident transformation. Do you believe that? Be evident transformation when you follow Christ. It's kind of like this. A couple starts dating. They get engaged. Then they get married, right? They start dating, and they do all the things, all the things. What are the things you do when you date? You do all the things. You go out to eat all the time. You spend money you don't have, right? You, you buy things you wish you never wouldn't buy. You buy a ring that costs too much money, and you just go through all these things. You do all the things. You get engaged, and you, you do all the things, all the things that you do when you're engaged. And then you get married, and you profess your love all in your devotion, all the way through the dating and the engagement. You're at the altar. You make the covenant. You say all the things, it would be like that couple who were completely changed, completely transformed. It'd be, it'd be like this. Then one or both of them live as, as if nothing changed. They dated, they were engaged, they got to the altar, then they left the altar, and they, they got back from the honeymoon, and then they started living like nothing changed. Their old habits of single life started to pop up again. Right? 
She might have a new name, but she's living like she still belongs to her dad. He might have been given a precious gift to steward, but, but he's living like that responsibility doesn't exist. The point is this, is that whenever we are born again and we've been changed from the inside, that, that will be evident on the outside. When God saves us by faith in him, he redeems us, there's going to be evidence that we belong to him. And here's the powerful thing. There is hope in Christ that we do not have to to be plagued by the same sinful habits that marked our previous life. Do you believe that? We do not have to be marked by those grave clothes. We can be changed through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of his word. The Christian life, listen, is the journey of redeemed sinners who pursue Christ's likeness for the glory of God and the salvation of the lost. The Christian life is a life of pursuing Christ's likeness. And the Lord gives us the tools we need to walk in newness of life. Amen? Just a necessary point right here. Uh, here's some, I just want to say this. I think it's good for us to hear this. Don't tell me about your sound doctrine if that sound doctrine is not leading to a Christ-like life. Right? Don't tell me about your good theology if that theology is not leading to a mortification of fleshly desires. Right? And don't tell me about your revival if your revival is not moving you towards holy behavior, right? The Christ-like life is the pursuit of those who are believers. He saves us, but he changes us, and he gives us the tools that we need to pursue him and to become like him. So how does the Lord change us? How does our doctrine turn into practice? How will our right theology impact right living? Or said with Lazarus in mind, how do the grave clothes fall off? Here's how it is, real practical. Here's, here's how we apply this to our life. I would call it the ordinary means of grace. These are the ordinary means of grace. I could talk about a few of them, maybe four or five different areas, but here's three of them to consider. Here are the ordinary ways in which God makes us more like Christ. The word of God, prayer, and Christian fellowship. I think those are three ways in which God makes us more like him. Those grave clothes start to fall off of our life. Those remnants of, our, of, the, of the dead man begin to fall off through the word of God. Are you in the word of God? Are you prayer? Are you in prayer? Are you in Christian fellowship with brothers and sisters who can hold you accountable, who can encourage you in your walk with Christ? So what have we seen so far today as we conclude here this morning? We've seen that Jesus is God because only God can raise the dead. We've seen that Jesus is God and only God can save dead sinners. And we've seen that Jesus is God and only God can change redeemed sinners. Amen? So I want to conclude like this. Charles Spurgeon preached from John 11 on November 18th, 1855. He preached about this. He preached this section right here, verses 38 through 44. And I was going to write a conclusion to my sermon. And I read Charles Spurgeon's conclusion. And I thought, the Prince of Preachers, as they called Spurgeon, had a pretty good conclusion. So I'm going to read his conclusion. I wish it would be up here so you could read it. You have to try to look behind me. I would like for you to read along if you can. Listen to this. I mean, this is from 1855. In these days, when it is advertised that there is a special sermon to be preached, people rush off to hear a popular preacher or somebody who happens to be much talked about. 
But do you know what that man does when he preaches? And what you do when you hear? Are you aware that every time that man stands in the pulpit, if he is unfaithful, he subjects himself to the wrath of God? Do you not know that if at last that man who stands up to preach to the people should have been discovered to have preached false doctrine, his doom must be horrible in the extreme? Oh, it is a solemn work to preach. And it should be a solemn work to hear. For every preaching and every hearing, the Lord will call us to account in the last great day when he will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. What has the preacher talked to this morning? He has told you first that you're all dead. But some of you will go away and laugh at it, but laughing at it will not make you alive. He has told you in the next place that Christ can make you alive. But you despise that Christ. But Mark, your despising him will not free you from condemnation at the last great day. But one says, I will hear no more of this matter. It is nonsense and I will not turn. Ah, my hearer, if I see you going to destruction and you know it not, it is nonetheless destruction because you do not see it. But another says, but another says, this day I will give myself to Jesus. For I know I need life. I lie down, a corpse, and though I cannot move, I know that when he passes by, he will give me life. Go! God is something for you. Go and fall before him. You shall have life bestowed upon you. Go and accept it. For the Holy Spirit says today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Amen. Amen. It's a good conclusion.